This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We expect to be joined later today by a couple of uh, old pals, or I don't know, one or two, we're not sure. I'll just save that for when they show up. Which allows me to streak right into beginning the program as we like to do with on this date in history. The date in question today being the 8th of January. On this date in 1889, Dr. Herman Hollerith received a U.S. patent for his electric tabulating machine, which tallied numbers from punched cards. The tabulating machine company later grew into the International Business Machines Corporation, better known to you as IBM. On this date in 1916, during World War I, the Allies retreated from the Gallipoli Peninsula in Turkey, ending a disastrous invasion of the Ottoman Empire that resulted in 250,000 Allied casualties and greatly discredited the Allied military command. Foremost among them, Winston Churchill, who did later manage to make a political comeback. On January 8th of 1926, Abdul Aziz Ibn Saud became the king of the Hejaz, a region in Arabia. In 1932, he combined it with the Nejd region and called the country after himself, Saudi Arabia. Being named after the royal family, uh, well, has persisted to the present. On this date in 1988, the stock market crash of 1987 was blamed on automated computer trading. In February of that year, the New York Stock Exchange announced trading curbs to prevent a repeat. And ever since then, things have gone swimmingly with the New York Stock Exchange, which, of course, we've all seen demonstrated as of late. And we would note from the Almanac that uh, sunrise this morning, this is according to the old Farmer's Almanac, is at 725. That's the latest sunrise of the year. It's been that way for the last 10 days. It'll be this way for three more days, and then the sun will start rising earlier again. The sun sets have been coming later for over a month now. This screwball asymmetry is related to a thing called the analema, the path traced out by the sun in the sky, and we, we can't explain it on radio. Actually, the main reason I can't explain it is I don't fully understand it. <laughs> That's just one of those things where you, you sort of get it, but there's, there's a missing piece. When we bring an astronomer on next, and you know we will, maybe we'll get Bruce Betts back on the program, we'll, we'll have him take a whack at it. And uh, speaking of astronomy, I was uh, quite, uh, quite intrigued by the picture in Astronomy Magazine last month showing the fact that uh, showing the size of the sun this time of year. January 4th marked the closest approach of the Earth to the sun. And if you compare an image of how big the sun looks now as to how big it looks when we're farthest away from it, which is about the 4th of July, it's a significant difference. It's about 7% bigger in area. So if you're planning to go out and get a nasty sunburn, uh, don't go do it in Australia. Our quote of the day comes from the late, great astronomer Carl Sagan, who once said, I can find in my undergraduate classes bright students who do not know that the stars rise and set at night, or even that the sun is a star. Our bonus quote from Carl Sagan is, The fact that some geniuses were laughed at does not imply that all who laughed at are geniuses. They laughed at Columbus. They laughed at Fulton. They laughed at the Wright brothers. But they also laughed at Bozo the Clown. 
Our quip of the day comes from Irving Brecker, who died last month. Brecker had been a screenwriter and wrote for the Marx Brothers, among others. He apparently once angered film producer Daryl Zanuck by telling him that the movie he just made hadn't been released. It escaped. Our statistic of the day is that according to the Times Higher Education of London, which tries to assess the top 100 universities in the world, UC Davis has moved up in the rankings, as it has for the past four years, from 206th place in 2005 to its current position of 89th. I think one needs to take such evaluations uh, with a grain of salt, but it is nice to see the recognition for UC Davis. Our joke of the day, which we got off of AmazingJokes.com, is as follows. John was on his deathbed. He was gasping. Give me one last request, dear. Of course, John, said his wife. Six months after I die, he said, I want you to marry Bob. His wife said, but I thought you hated Bob. Said John, I do. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week for diplomacy a couple weeks back when Barbara Streisand apparently got an awkward kiss on the cheek from none other than George W. Bush. Streisand was named a recipient of the Kennedy Center Honors. The singer is, of course, an outspoken liberal who said that both of Bush's electoral victories were stolen. She said she put all that aside to receive the prestigious award. Art transcends politics this week, she said. And it was a bad week a couple weeks back for neo-Nazis when it turned out that uh, a New Jersey man, Heath Campbell, charged that a ShopRite supermarket refused to personalize a birthday cake for his three-year-old son, Adolf Hitler Campbell. Not only that, said Campbell, the store also refused to inscribe a cake for his two-year-old daughter, Jocelyn Aryan Nation Campbell. Heath Campbell was pleased to note that the staff at Walmart was far more helpful. Said a Walmart spokesman, our number one priority in decorating cakes is to serve our customer to the best of our ability. So I guess now we know if you need to get a swastika made in frosting, Walmart's the place to go. And finally, it was in kind of an ugly week this week for the possible political future of this nation when President George Herbert Walker Bush, remember him, was asked in a recent interview about Jeb Bush's possible consideration for running for the Senate in Florida. Said Bush 41, I'd like to see him run. I'd like to see him be president someday. Here's the part I like best about the article. When asked if he was serious said the former chief whiner and wimp, or maybe senator, what, whatever. Yes, I would. I mean, right now is probably a bad time because we've had enough Bushes in there, but no, I would. And I think he's as qualified as, and as able as anyone I know on the political scene. Slightly to his credit, Bush added, now, you've got to discount that. He's my son. Yes, George Herbert Walker, we've had quite enough of your sons, I think, for ever. 
And from the Only in America file, we have this item which I missed in, in the debates, but apparently John McCain and Sarah Palin took a swipe at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago after the not-for-profit facility was proposing spending $3 million for a new planetarium. Said John McCain during one of the debates, $3 million for an overhead projector at a planetarium? My friends, do we need to spend that kind of money? It turns out it was for the entire projection system of the planetarium, not an overhead projector like your old high school chemistry teacher used to use. And it turns out when McCain said that, the federal government had not okayed the request to fund the projector. And do we need to spend that kind of money? Yes, we do. Like Carl Sagan, we don't want to see students who are unaware of the fact that stars rise and set. In fact, it's sad to note in the modern world with all of our light pollution, people just don't know the stars at all. And I got a kick out of this item. Apparently a, a public relations firm in New York is working hard now to rebrand the Republican Party. They've got a big poster out that says, Renew, reinvest, refresh, recommit, restore, rethink, republican. First noted a wise guy in print. Uh, well, this leaves off a few like regress and repressive. <laughs> and one they definitely don't want to use, recount. Speaking of recounts, Al Franken's officially 200 and some odd votes ahead of Norm Coleman in Minnesota. But in this case, the Republicans may ask for a recount because the Minnesota law apparently allows it. And this may stretch out the certification of a senator from Minnesota till God knows when. We need to talk a bit about what's going on over in Gaza. Seems clear that Israel did not learn a damn thing from its ill-fated invasion of Lebanon a couple years ago. And we refer you to the excellent article in Vanity Fair magazine. This is from April of, uh, of last year, titled The Gaza Bombshell, which explains why things were in such a mess, at least in terms of Hamas taking over the reins of government in Gaza, because the U.S., that would be Condoleezza Rice et al., pushed for an election, and they had no game plan <laughs> Uh, in place if the side they didn't want to win prevailed. That would be Hamas, and they did win. The article points out that, um, that George Bush, Condoleezza Rice, and Deputy National Security Advisor Elliot Abrams were really kind of behind the idea of a Palestinian civil war between Fatah and Hamas. The trouble is the horse they backed, Fatah, got shellacked in the subsequent power struggle. Israel is facing a torrent of indignation from all over the world for its uh, misadventures in Gaza at the moment. Uh, left out of the current discussion has been the fact that uh, for months now, Israel has been trying to undermine Hamas by clamping an ep economic boycott on Gaza. Things have been a mess in Gaza. They claim they're doing this because people keep firing rockets into southern Israel. That is stupid. That is counterproductive. And that is something Hamas should have stopped. But noted The Economist magazine, a country must first have exhausted all other means of defending itself before it goes to war. The attack should be proportionate to the objective, and it must stand a reasonable chance of achieving its goal. Noted the magazine, on all three of these tests, Israel is on shakier ground than it cares to admit. 
Another, we may only have 12 days left of President George Bush. His administration, like it did in Lebanon, is just hanging back and waiting for Israel and waiting for Israel to deliver a knockout punch that's probably not going to come. And I think that's all we'll say about that today. Although thinking about Israel, I was horrified to, to do some reading about a man we had on this program before. Mordecai Venunu spoke to us from Israel a couple years back. Mr. Venunu spent 18 years in prison, including 11 in solitary confinement, for the heinous crime of informing the world that Israel really does have a nuclear weapons program, something that has been known now for about 35 years, but which, for political reasons, Israel cares to neither confirm nor deny. We were horrified to realize on this program that in 2007, Mordecai Venunu was sentenced to six months in prison for violating the terms of his parole. These included giving interviews to foreign journalists. Luckily for, luckily for Venunu, and probably due to international pressure, that sentence was subsequently commuted to six months of community service in January of last year. At this point in time, he would simply like to leave Israel. Other countries, including Norway, are willing to take him, and so we hope he can achieve his goal. In the meantime, we're going to try to more closely monitor uh, what is happening with him because that does offer him a certain amount of protection. I don't mean us keeping an eye on him, of course, but I mean the fact that foreign journalists and foreign observers are keeping a watchful eye out. Also want to do a little bit of follow-up on our mentioning uh, last week that it was the 50th anniversary of the Cuban Revolution down in Cuba. We mentioned on numerous occasions that communism is not working for the Castro brothers. Uh, actually, correction, it's working great for the Castro brothers. It's just not working too well for too many other people on the island. There's a great deal of hope that an Obama administration will attempt to normalize relations with Cuba, which has suffered not only from ham-fisted economic mismanagement by their leadership, but also a U.S. embargo, which dates back to John F. Kennedy. If Fidel Castro is still alive in two weeks, and we figure he will be, it means he will have outlasted 10 consecutive United States presidents since he took power. I think it's probably fair to say that the embargo has not brought him to his knees. Noted The Economist, half a century on, the euphoria is long gone. Everyday life in Cuba is a dreary affair of queues and shortages, even if nobody starves and violent crime is rare. It is the only country in the Americas whose government denies its citizens freedom of expression and assembly. Cuba's jails contain 58 prisoners of conscience detained purely for their beliefs. Although I doubt very seriously that the magazine's correct when it asserts that uh, this is the only country in the Americas whose government denies citizens freedom of expression and assembly. Nevertheless, uh, uh, this is just not right. Anyway, Fidel Castro is a charismatic uh, figure and an interesting man, to be sure, and he has done some good for Cuba, but uh, I just was struck by the picture in The Economist showing him waving to a crowd with uh, Carmelo Cienfuegos off his right-hand side. Cienfuegos, uh, along with uh, Che Guevara, were a couple of his right-hand men during the revolution. There's good evidence that Castro considered both of them just a little too popular for his own good which caused him to send Che around the world to incite revolution. 
and uh, at least according to some, caused Cienfuegos to have a mysterious plane crash in western Cuba. Anyway, I really hope for the benefit of the poor people suffering in Cuba that we can indeed normalize relations starting on January 20th. All right, we've talked in this program before about uh, how it is the British use the English language better than we do. Got a startling example of this from the simultaneous articles in New Scientist magazine and Scientific American on the subject of magicology. Actually, we can summarize it in one sentence. The New Scientist called the article Magicology. Scientific American called it Magic and the Brain. And you know what? I think I'm going to have to defer this uh, discussion till our third segment today because I want to go on a bit about it. So let's instead inform you of the fact that uh, we did see Valkyrie, the Tom Cruise movie about uh, Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg's attempt to kill Hitler in 1944 was making fun of the review by Kurt Loder, which talked about how the movie suffered from the fact that you knew how it was going to end, which, stupid though that was, uh, was balanced up by the fact that Loder was pretty complimentary about the movie subsequently, which is unfortunately more than I can say for John Anderson, whose special to the Washington Post was regrettably reprinted by the Sacramento Bee, making that section of the Bee suitable for, you know, a good fish wrap, or perhaps for lining your parakeet's cage. But uh, speaking of bad use of the English language, uh, this is just a new low. Actually, I have to quote from this bonehead. Some viewers may find the trailer for Valkyrie, in which an eyepatch-wearing Tom Cruise plays would-be Fuhrer assassin Klaus von Stauffenberg, to be the funniest thing since springtime for Hitler. That would be unfair. Valkyrie, from which we can tell, looks far funnier than springtime for Hitler. This World War II thriller isn't meant to amuse, of course, but what can the viewer do? Confronted with the piratical faux-Teutonic cruise, one is simply overcome with involuntary hysteria, which inadvertently proves something that needn't be proved at all, that Mel Brooks is a genius. Brooks has always known that the only foolproof way to put Nazis on screen is as the butt of jokes. I think I just have to stop right I don't know, John Anderson must have gone to film school or something. He goes on and on talking about the producers, of which, of course, springtime for Hitler came. I think somewhere in the, you know the review, which takes up most of a whole page, he does get around to at some point actually referring to the movie at hand, Valkyrie. Let's see, let's see. Oh, yes, yes, there is a paragraph later in the discussion. Well, Mr. Anderson got it wrong. Roger Moore of the Orlando Sentinel got it quite a bit more right, as reprinted in the B. Moore said, as was noted in his review, reprinted in the B, Moore said, an unfussy, adult, and stoic Tom Cruise anchors this World War II thriller. In a compact performance of nerve and rare glimpses of emotion, Cruise is a leading man who takes us through a complex story and ennobles and personalizes events that have faded into history. The story of the attempt to murder Adolf Hitler with a bomb in July of 1944 is a remarkable tale. The men involved in the conspiracy knew with certainty that if they failed, they would all die. The movie really captures the complexity of the plot and, and, and how some people were, were at cross-purposes. Some were involved in it simply because they wanted to perhaps save themselves, knowing that Germany was going to go down to defeat with certainty. But as explained by William L. Shirer in The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, his history of Nazi Germany, at least some of the... Uh, 
The Nazi military men, such as uh, Colonel Treskow, played in the movie by Kenneth Branagh, told the plotters that an assassination must be attempted at any cost. Even should it fail, the attempt to seize power in the capital must be undertaken. We must prove to the world and to future generations that the men of the German resistance movement dared to take the decisive step and to hazard their lives upon it. Compared with this object, nothing else matters. And they were prepared to risk their life for that. Risk they did, and in fact, virtually all of them lost their lives as a consequence. Although it is remarkable to note, as I think we did in passing earlier this year, that the man who actually built the bomb, which failed to kill Hitler, survived until, uh, until 2008. But very few of the plotters did survive. Something like 7,000 people were rounded up by the Gestapo and executed or committed suicide uh, as an alternative. So anyway, in spite of what you heard, Valkyrie is an excellent movie. It's been our great pleasure uh, on this program to have interviewed one of the contemporaries of William L. Shirer, both of whom were hired by Edward R. Murrow to work at CBS during World War II. Richard C. Hodlett is still alive. He's still reporting, and we had him on this show. It was quite compelling to hear a firsthand report of someone who observed Adolf Hitler as a reporter, observed him standing a few feet away from him, and a noted for posterity that he found nothing charismatic about him. If only the same could have, be, could have been said about uh, the mass of the German people. And I must say, uh, for this program, I've gotten around to reading a lot of things that I meant to, some of them dating back to high school. One of them was The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William L. Shirer. And if you've never read this book, I highly recommend that you do so. After seeing the movie, I reread the chapter on, on the assassination attempt, and I must say it is, it is, it is a masterpiece. It also demonstrates that, uh, that uh, the movie got it right. We'll talk more about that, I think, in a future installment, perhaps with our movie, movie reviewer, Gary Chu. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for more. <laughs>